0: Recording live from the Hoban Law Group here in Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Eric Singular. We're sitting alongside president and founder of the Hoban Law Group, Bob Hoban. About a month and a half ago, we had these two gentlemen uh, here in the studio for a fireside chat, and we are bringing that back around tonight. And I'm talking, of course, about HLG managing attorney, Garrett Graff, and HLG partner, Donnie Emmy. Uh, it's wonderful to have you guys back here in the studio. And I think what we really want to hear and what our listenership wants to hear, since you guys really have your finger on the pulse of the cannabis industry, you're talking to people every day about what they are going through, what they're thinking about, what is, uh, what are the top-of-mind concerns going forward in this post-COVID or... Uh, COVID intermediate time, because it may be coming back in full force. uh, What are you hearing? What are the trends, if you will, um, that you're hearing from your clients?
1: Yeah, thanks, Eric. Thanks for having us back. Uh, always good to be here. And yeah, I mean, we're seeing a number of trends happening across the board. You know, some of those are directly stemming from COVID uh, in terms of, you know, landlord-tenant disputes and uh, you know, drying up of capital in, in some respects. Uh, certainly folks trying to uh, batten down the hatches and, and and you know, tighten their, their belt buckles, uh, so to speak, in terms of how they run their business and how lean they are uh, in running their business and, and in burning their cash. Uh, you know, I think it's that's also then leading to some more organic and naturally uh, occurring no pun intended uh, uh, with respect to cannabinoids but other trends that are you know, more naturally occurring are organic through the evolution of business uh, that you know, might include the deployment of capital in a more responsible manner uh, you know ways in which uh, you know, clients and businesses can utilize their labor and, and their workforce, uh, in more efficient ways in terms of their manufacturing operations their cultivation operations uh, you know identifying opportunities uh, with re- which to raise capital and what capital is actually necessary and then at times and, and we often see this and you know certainly Donnie I'm sure you can comment on this more we see an uptick in, in litigation you, you see a lot of issues as I you know mentioned before landlord tenant disputes you see uh, supply arrangements uh, gone awry uh, unable to be performed fully uh, and then you you know see lots of partnership and other types of disputes that uh, ultimately come to fruition so I think we'll continue to see those some of those trends uh uh over the course of time
2: yeah I I agree so what we've seen you know COVID kind of hit the uh, fast forward button on 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 how businesses have to evolve to compete um you know months ago and, and over the last couple of years money was free there was plenty of it for everybody and nobody cared. You know, it was here's your piece, here's your piece, and and management wasn't a focus. Business plans weren't a focus. And this this is not a wholesale to every every cannabis industry uh, uh, customer or client, but this is this is something that we've seen as a trend. And what happens when when something like uh, coronavirus comes, or uh, a recession, or or some kind of reconciliation or contraction in the marketplace comes, is is all of a sudden now you have to focus on your core strengths and your core business plan. And 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 money isn't coming in from investors like it was. There wasn't this capital call where you just said, hey, I want more. I need more. And it just kept coming. I'll just keep giving away more equity in my company. People stopped. And and what we're seeing a lot more is a deeper dive and more intelligent due diligence into these investments. And what the consequence of that is, is, in, and to bring up your point that you just raised on the litigation is, is, People are starting to look at their investments. And, and I receive calls on a regular basis on, on people looking at their investments and saying, this may not have been represented to me the way it should have been, or this pitch deck wasn't what it was. And I got under these these premises. Uh, I, I, I joined this company or gave my money or, or or gave my time. and And those things are coming around full circle now, now that the well is drying up and people are looking at the decisions that they made or decisions that were thrust upon them. So um, I, I think there's a lot of reconciliation. It's just the natural evolution that we're going to see over the next several months and years to come.
3: That, that occurs to me be, to be correct in the sense that, yes, the industry evolves. There's, there's peaks and valleys. Um, things are going to take an unusual course, particularly in a brand-new industry that still remains it remains illegal under federal law, so that colors the type of financial arrangements that are made for investment. It also colors the types, the pool of investors that invest in high risk, in theory, high reward type businesses. Now we've seen high profile businesses, to name a few, MedMen, Canopy. Um, not to pick on any one of those businesses, but looking at their uh, their their stymied growth, uh, perhaps even their retraction, uh, and then the fact that they are changing personnel at the top, um, to me these are just signs of an evolution of an industry. It seems like somehow some way on the sideline people are looking at the medmen deals and the canopy deals and saying, "See, I told you that wouldn't work. It's going to go back to just some sort of cottage industry where every business is owned in a mom and pop fashion." And while I do believe there'll be a fair amount of 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 craft owners, if you will, that own small businesses with very specific focuses of high quality and otherwise. I just don't see an industry that produces as much money as this industry ever being something that's just so simple and not complex. And and and, and Garrett, I'd love your take on this, but just to back that up with the numbers, I saw today that the adult use market or what they call the retail market in MJ Biz. Uh, the publication online, said that it was $15 billion of revenue. In other words, the rec market, the adult use market, has surpassed the NBA, uh, which has about $8.8 billion of direct revenue. Uh, That says something, doesn't it? This is not small business. This doesn't just reek of small cottage stores that service a small local population. How could it be sustainable with such high regulations?
1: Yeah, Bob, I, I agree with that in many respects. And I actually go back to what Donnie said, core strengths, right? That is the the type of scrutiny that I'm seeing a ton of businesses undergo in terms of how they evaluate where they are today, both with the impact that COVID has had, had upon their business, but also how to provide a return uh, to their investors or their shareholders to provide an an attractive investment. You see that with just about every single Canadian publicly traded company that there is on the exchange as of today. You're seeing retraction in a lot of their business plans in the scope of their business plans. You're seeing a lot of privately held companies, like you said. Uh, you know, then there's you know MedMen, of course. Uh, then there's others. Uh, you know, in California. And elsewhere, that they're retracting their business plans and, and focusing on their core strengths. You see a lot of companies that you know maybe had, they had a hundred products in their product portfolio, and now they're whittling that down to you know what we started our company as a you know tincture company or wh- whatever the case might be, and they're getting rid of, of a lot of that waste on the outside, on the fringes, right? Or uh, you're seeing um, you know other companies that uh, they have operations globally across, you know, six different continents, but it's virtually impossible to efficiently run that type of operation. And while the industry may not be a cottage industry, and I absolutely agree with that, neither is it yet able to support that type of global operation at scale and at efficiency. So certainly your points and your data, uh, you know, as surpassing the the uh, MBA revenue uh, is well taken. Uh, I certainly agree that cannabis is here to stay. Uh, it's not going anywhere. You know, you've heard a lot of folks during the COVID uh, pandemic suggest that you know this will be the justification for Congress and other states to legalize marijuana by virtue of the economic impacts that it can bring. You know, reasonable minds can differ on that point, uh, but it does not ultimately change that cannabis is a not just a cottage business or a business, but a big business, uh, of course. You know, you're not seeing the canopies and the other you know, publicly trade companies. They're not retracting to the point that they're off the exchange. They're still talking about, you know, seven, eight, nine uh, uh, figures in, in revenue and whatnot. Uh, but uh, as part of that, you know, they are becoming more sharpened and laser focused in how they run their businesses, focusing on those core strengths.
2: Yeah, I agree that the days of the uh, cute business, business pitch deck to uh, as your business plan, they're over. Um, and, I'm, and I'm pleased with that outcome. But, but to your point, Bob, on, on the adult use uh, revenue being surpassing 15000000000 billion, uh, I'm reminded by that map that's in the other side of this office here. That's North America. We, haven't, we have not seen what South America is going to do yet. We have not seen what Europe, Africa, Asia, um, you know, these are untapped, untapped markets. And, and this is going to be the – this will – cannabis will compete. With the alcohol industry, there's no doubt about it. The, the alcohol industry is paying attention, and they're paying attention very well. I mean, we know Constellation Brands is, is actively investing and have taken a controlling or have the ability to take a controlling interest.
1: Yeah, but haven't they written down their investment, too, as, as part of the recognition of, uh, uh, you know, everything going on in the industry?
2: But don't think that companies like InBev aren't watching, and InBev is making moves. We just, you know, the, we know some of the moves that people are making, but we don't know them all and and there is alcohol industry is paying attention big pharma is paying attention this has the potential to to be one of the largest uh i don't want to use the word industry but it's it's the one of the largest industries in the world
3: yeah there's there's no doubt i think that to you know to sum up this point it, it seems like the lessons we've learned as an industry um is if you look at Gen County and you look at MedMen, and there's a recent allegation about a California-based company, and they they blew through millions and millions of dollars, if not billions, well, millions and millions, if not hundreds of millions, at the end of the day, on lavish parties, uh, personal jets, um, cars, uh, high-end travel arrangements, so forth and so on. Uh, Those are not things that are typical in an emerging industry that's trying to focus, to your point, Garrett, on the foundational elements. But they are traits that come along with speculators that come into an industry and try to make a quick splash and move out. Um, And that is the phase that we're getting through. That doesn't mean a negative thing for the industry. I don't think. I don't think any of us do. It's just an evolution. It's a growth. And for this industry to really plant roots, it needs to have back to basic fundamentals in place. And I think that's what we're we're seeing happen in front of our eyes. Well, this has
0: been, uh, it's been fun to just kind of sit back and watch you guys here talking about the different trends that you're all seeing. And I just want to highlight a couple of things that came up in all of that. Uh, Saw the other day that Anheuser-Busch is investing in a CBD beverage of some sort. So to your point, You know, they're already moving in and obviously very, very closely watching. Uh, And then I'm not sure if this is the same statistic as the NBA, but uh, Colorado marijuana sales in May were the highest they've ever been. And I think when you pair that, uh, those those sales numbers, with the fact that this was a time – you know we we know right now that a lot of companies are reporting what their Q two Q two earnings were, and it's going to be abysmal. Uh, that this has been something that's been kind of rocking the uh, the financial world for a little bit. Here is an industry, if we're going to use that word, uh, that is just thriving. That clearly, not only was it essentially designated, but it is uh, it's thriving in a time when other businesses are failing left and right. And we can speculate on whether or not that will. Uh, cause other states or the federal government to take notice and really consider the economic uh, stimulus uh, or economic stimulation benefits of a commercial regulated uh, cannabis marketplace or not. Uh, but I want to shift gears a little bit and just pose this to you, because this has been a topic we've talked about a lot on the on the Hoba Minute, and especially recently, but social equity. And we see states try to tackle this issue in different ways. We just saw Polis uh, come out and uh, work on an expungement effort. This is years after legalization occurred here in Colorado. We talked last week uh, with a gentleman, Alex Halperin, who was talking about Massachusetts and how they are using their licensing structure and different elements at the state level to try to encourage uh, businesses that are owned by minorities, people of color, et cetera. So I'm, I'm interested in your guys' take on this for a moment. If What do you see as ways that the state or the industry or whatever it is uh, can try to foster some social equity as the cannabis topic in general becomes larger, which I think is going to happen both because the, the big guys like Anheuser-Busch and Imbev are paying attention and political policymakers and, and polit- politicians, everybody is starting to take this industry perhaps a little more seriously.
3: Well, on the, on the social equity piece, it, it certainly is something that uh, – that the cannabis industry is uniquely designed for because of the criminal justice impact attached to the cannabis plant for so long. Uh, In Colorado's case, with our governor, it's a laudable effort. Uh, It feels like it's something that maybe should have been discussed or addressed uh, quite some time ago, considering we've had a a legal market for for so long. But at the end of the day, I think social equity programs are good if they're well-designed, and perhaps the most well-designed thus far would be the Illinois program, Uh, and that's, of course, a diverse marketplace as well. What I worry about as a lawyer, because I've seen things like this go on in licensing scenarios early on, when, for example, in Colorado early on, growers had to effectively merge with retailers, There had to be vertical integration. So what happened was one party was more sophisticated than the other party. And they said, I'm going to partner up with Grower X or Retailer X, effectively, quote unquote, use them to get through the licensing process with very little papering of the deal or the papering was rudimentary at best. And then once that license has been awarded, the stronger folks, the folks with more resources took the business over and pushed the other, uh, quote unquote, weaker person out. Um, that, unfortunately, is, an, uh, is a result that also could be seen in the social equity context. If there's a uh, an incentive for states to award businesses, business licenses, to minority-owned businesses – it's possible, and folks need to be wary of this, that folks will attach themselves to minority owners as a as a face, as a placeholder, as a straw man, if you will, to get the license and then not be equitable to that person going forward. And there's always that chance that the deal isn't papered the, the proper way. So those are some of the things that I see that come out of social equity that really need to be scrutinized very closely to see what's an effect the program. But does social equity work? as a concept when you're talking about investment and the growth of this industry, Donnie?
2: It does work, and, and to echo your point on, on cannabis being uniquely positioned, to add to that is, is this, is it isn't an ingrained industry yet. You know, there is a lot of opportunity for minority business owners, women, uh, people that had been in, in situations of disadvantage that weren't uh, subject to the, the way things always were. Um, and cannabis businesses, it, you know, as we've seen in some instances, have already gone some steps in that direction. Um, I'd like to see it go a little further, um, and I think there are paths for that. Uh, but, but there there is things that need to be watched out for exactly to your point. Um, this, is, this, is, uh, this is not the first time this has happened where you'll go out and you'll find the straw man or the straw woman just to get in that door. Um, and, and, and they're awarded some type of equity on a clawback position or on, in some kind of way that you could marginalize their effectiveness uh, other than to just be a face of the organization, um, and then, then ultimately this is a, an exit strategy that's developed. And at the exit, the person that they used from the beginning is the person that's the first discarded, that gets a small piece of the pie, and, and the, the way it always worked wins again. So there has to be a lot of uh, extra steps. I do I do applaud Governor Polis for his efforts. Uh, and and it, I always say this: uh, it's better late than never. And I'm going to misquote Von Miller on this. I think, but he said it. It's, it's always the right time to do something right, or something to that effect. But but that's what it is. Is th- there isn't there isn't a, I don't I don't think that we sit back and say, well, we didn't do it right the first time, so we do nothing now. Now we have to do something, and it's important that we recognize the things that can happen to get ahead of them before they do happen.
1: Well, and 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 from that standpoint, right? You know, it's it's easy enough to separate or bifurcate out uh expungement from, you know, social equity you know, plans designed for purposes of applications, right? That's why Governor Pulse was able to do that. And I, I think that that's something that is laudable, that is replicable, you know, right, you know, in terms of across a number of different jurisdictions, you know, states, municipalities, countries, et cetera, around the world, uh, and certainly, you know, a, a way to help address some of the, the social equity components um, and inequities that, that have existed, you know, historically. I I think there are a number of challenges presented with respect to, you know, the implementation of social equity plans, Um, at the application level for licensure, right? I mean, you know, it's almost to an extent deplorable, right, that we're sitting here trying to positively address social equity by providing these social equity plans that uh, incentivize and encourage and and provide preference to minorities or others that have, uh, you know, been, uh, uh, you know, disadvantaged historically, you know, by the cannabis industry, and yet they're the ones, to your point, Donnie, that are first discarded. Isn't that almost uh, uh, adding insult to the injury, uh, I would argue, and and so it's how do we avoid providing that opportunity, that that systematic uh, issue, right? How do we make sure that we are not just addressing the symptoms of something, but actually the the core issue systematically across the board? And and that's a much broader question, and we can only take you know small steps, step by step, to chip away at that. I certainly think that these application designs uh, and license uh, uh, you know, awards can help you know, encourage that historically, um, but it's, it's going to be very difficult uh, from a governmental level. And so that's where, how can the cannabis industry itself internally uh, and, and separate from, you know, the governmental agencies do better uh, in, and of, in and of itself to, you know, provide an example across other industries as well. So.
0: Let's uh, all great points guys, and, and thank you for, for touching on all that. I do think it's interesting to hear kind of the legal perspective around social equity because it has been such a, uh, a timely topic in the last uh, couple of months. Let's shift over to a quick regulatory discussion on industrial hemp this was uh, This was a big year for hemp or at least it was really supposed to be. Uh, because you had the USDA finally come out and provide a framework, an interim framework, but a framework nonetheless for hemp farmers. Uh, And it did, that regulatory framework really did end at Farmgate Uh, in the past couple of weeks. We've, of course, seen the FDA, and Garrett, I know you you commented on this on the uh, Hoban Law Group YouTube page, but on the FDA's report, basically saying that a number of products that are on the market are mislabeled or in some ways misrepresented. And I just want to talk a little bit. We've seen some numbers from the the hemp publications that licensing was down a little bit this year. or If it wasn't licensing, it was acreage, but there was a COVID impact on the amount of uh, hemp farming that occurred this year. I'm just interested in your thoughts. I know the USDA was really looking at this year to set the benchmark for uh, how they are going to implement a final domestic hemp production program here in the United States. And of course, there's so many people who are waiting on the FDA for everything that happens post Farmgate. All these people who are saying, we don't even know if CBD is legal, uh, It's if it's legal to extract from a legally grown hemp plant. And we're waiting for the FDA guidance to really give us a true framework. Now, Bob, I know that's something you talk about a lot, but just want to kind of get a, an update here. It's July. The hemp is in the ground. It's growing. What are the regulatory concerns? Uh,
1: To take a step back, right? You know, just specific to hemp. I think it's important to understand that there is across all industries and the cannabis industry included, there's generally been a delay, you know, related to the COVID pandemic right? You know, you you speak to, you know, the marijuana impacts uh, or the impacts on the marijuana industry by COVID. We have this 2020 election, right? And in theory, there was a lot of hope that this would provide a lot of relief to marijuana legalization or at least one-off, you know, fixes. All that's delayed. Ballot initiatives that were set to come up in states where they've not yet legalized uh, marijuana. many Much of that has been delayed. Then transitioning over to hemp, you're right, you know, a lot of uh, folks had hoped that this would be a big year for hemp. And instead we've seen a dramatic price decrease in marginalization and commoditization across the board within the industry. Uh, you're seeing a decrease in terms of the number of farmers uh, that are farming hemp right now. There's still plenty of material. Uh, but, Again, a lot of it leads to delay. FDA, yes, they issued a report saying, "Hey, uh, you know, we found that there's a need for regulation because hemp products aren't necessarily accurate in how they're presenting uh, their labeling and data accuracy." Uh, but again, that's just leading to more delay for FDA to figure out what that regulation should look like. With respect to the USDA, yeah, they had high hopes that you know within uh, you know a year and a half from when they passed the Farm Bill in late 2018 that they'd have. Uh, the regulations fully implemented uh, ahead of the 2020 planning season. But here we are mid-planning season, and you've had about a 50-50 split amongst the states, some of which have uh, gone through uh, the 2018 uh, Farm Bill State Plan approval process with the USDA, Texas, Florida, Louisiana, New Jersey, Ohio, to name a few. But then a number of uh, stalwarts in the hemp industry, Colorado, Oregon, and Kentucky, for example, have said, "Hey, you know what? We're not in love with all these USDA regulations. The USDA itself is slow moving in terms of how they're implementing this. Uh, we're going to hold off and wait another year. And that's been reflected in in uh, you know regulation that basically that it's bought another." planting season, so to speak, under the old farm bill. And so again, it's just another reflection of the delay and uh, other impacts brought upon by the, the COVID pandemic.
3: I think some of the other challenges too depend on what the farmers are planting, Eric. To Garrett's point, the pricing of cannabinoids has just gone down. It's unstable in its best case scenario. And then you've got the FDA not coming out and giving very concrete specifications uh yet and those things don't bode well for a marketplace that is reliant on consumer behavior not you know wholesale behavior or manufacturing or industrial related purchasers and behavior but consumer behavior and unless there's a clear pathway to the consumer um by regulations that are ingrained by the federal government, by the FDA, it's going to continue to interrupt that side of the industry. Now, I don't think that's a terrible thing because I think that that helps us focus on things beyond CBD. That helps farmers that want to understand that I have to produce a crop that services multiple verticals, will plant industrial hemp and or um Begin the demand for the infrastructure. And I'm not talking about extraction. Extraction and labs have been the so-called infrastructure in this industry, in this, this sector for so long. But the infrastructure really needs to be farm basics. And when you're talking about hemp, you're talking about decortication, seed conditioning, seed cleaning, seed presses, Basic stuff until that infrastructure is in place closest to the farmers. We're not going to be be able to move where the plant is fully utilized, implemented and stabilized as a commodity, Um, nor will we be able to pull the speculators away from the CBD focus, which is nothing wrong with the CBD or the cannabinoid industry, not by a long shot. But it's extremely saturated, extremely competitive, and it lacks reliable, regulated distribution outlets. So it, it creates an environment that's fraught with uncertainty, which does not give investors, farmers, or anybody in that supply chain comfort. Infrastructure beyond CBD, Will.
0: Donnie, uh, any hemp-specific significant litigation that may arise? In the time to come or just specifically right now, anything you've uh, caught wind of, uh, whether it be, uh, we know we've seen some lawsuits with respect to genetics. Hey, you sold us this. You said this was the germination rate. We planted it and nothing actually produced from it uh, or anywhere else along the supply chain. Any litigation you see on the horizon?
2: Well, I think the horizon's here um, because what happened is uh, the hemp, the hemp. Uh, movement came, and everybody wanted a piece of it, and everybody wanted to throw every dollar at every person that said they can grow the greatest quality hemp, I have the greatest genetics, I have the greatest seed, and the problem was it didn't work. There were people that wore uh, suits and ties to work every day that became farmers, and that failed. There were were, uh, people that just had money and threw it at somebody, and it failed. And there's a lot of misrepresentations. There's a lot of bad planting. There's a lot of bad farming. And, and and this will, I mean, the hemp industry as it evolves will transition to traditional farmers, to real farmers that understand the soil and the product and how things are grown. Um, but we are seeing an uptick in litigation. We are seeing um, – one interesting piece of litigation we're seeing is the conflict between marijuana farmers and hemp farmers, because those two products don't match very well within a five mile radius of each other, or even longer. As we're seeing, but but we're going to see, and we have been seeing litigation along those lines. We're going to see a lot more um, as 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 the promises don't get kept, aren't kept, um, and as as uh, um, as there's more consolidation amongst the businesses and people want their investments or their return on investments that they're promised.
3: Well, so, Donnie, I'd like to drill into that just for a brief moment, and that is because it's really interesting, and I think our listeners will find it interesting. When you grow a marijuana crop, um, it's typically grown indoors, if not exclusively, but uh, in the Colorado, there are certainly exceptions to the rule. Um, feminized varieties, meaning if a feminized genetic is pollinated with males, uh, by a male, uh, then that genetic won't produce the yield of cannabinoids, THC, in the marijuana context. It'll uh, basically cause the plant to produce seeds and direct its energy to other than producing THC or cannabinoids. In other words, it results in a very poor crop, something you certainly can't sell flowers in, that seed, not in a commercial regulated market. So then hemp, when hemp's planted, a lot of times it's feminized seed, or quote-unquote feminized seed, uh, oftentimes, more often than not, planted outdoors. So in theory, feminized seed can't, can't germinate or can't pollinate another feminized genetic. But to your point, the genetics are not always what they're represented to be. And even in the best case scenario, there's probably still a small percentage that's reasonably and commercially acceptable of things that would deviate from the standard of of feminized standard genetics. So there's always the risk of cross-pollination. Governments have put buffer zones in place between marijuana and hemp businesses. Um, Farmers haven't always been aware of what their neighbor's planting. Talk just for a moment about those kinds of disputes, because what if I'm a hemp farmer? I go out, pardon me, I'm a marijuana farmer. I invest millions and millions and millions of dollars in my greenhouse. And somehow I realize there's a hemp farm being planted in May. And it's by the time I realize that those plants have popped out of the ground, they're a foot and a half tall. And, you know, either I can visibly see a bunch of males or there's a good chance that there's males in there. And it ruins my marijuana crop, or at least the only. Plausible justification for why my marijuana crop indoors turned out to be seeded and otherwise pollinated was because of that hemp crop. Um, how does that shake out in a, in a court? How does that frame a dispute?
2: So, um, just to use your
3: example directly,
2: um, there are a lot more, and more, there are more and more marijuana farms that are growing outdoors now. It, you know, as as the um, as the technology and and the ability to grow outdoors is is. is the same or similar to that of growing hemp. Um, and there are some states that are even um, have have a, a very robust outdoor marijuana growing market, Colorado being one of them, particularly down south. But but to your point, you if you're growing a 40-acre, 100-acre, or 1,000-acre or hemp field, you do not have the resources to manpower that hemp field to pull out every single male as it pops up. You just don't. It, in, in the best efforts that you make, you're not going to do that. And particularly, as, as to your point, feminized seed, feminized means mostly female, not all the way female. And, 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 and there are, there's a lot of litigation around it, uh, surrounding that because there were promises made these are 100% female, but that's just not true. It's just not possible. There isn't, there isn't a, 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 a seed grower in the world that will tell you that every single seed will be female not a legitimate one. So, so to that point, you have one male in a 40-acre field that pops up. That can pollinate not only that entire hemp field, but it can pollinate every marijuana field. And, and there are studies that go as, as far as 10 miles, but, but but reasonably believe within five miles of that male, every single cannabis plant, whether it's marijuana or hemp, are subject to risk. And, and the same could go both ways, by the way, because that marijuana plant that has the male that pops that can, that can pollinate the, the hemp field, and then now you have a problem because your THC content is enough that you are destroying that entire hemp field. So this the, we're seeing litigation go both ways. And there, there is there is an army of farmers on the hemp side and an army of farmers on the marijuana side that are at at odds, and, and there is a lot of lobbying dollars going to local and, and state governments to try to, to resolve that problem.
3: Well, and, 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 Garrett, to sort of bring this point home, What's been the government response? How do local governments uh, either address this, whether it's ag, whether it's a marijuana licensing or a zoning uh, licensing bureau? Wh- what have you seen, and is there any responsibility there? Politics. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I mean, you, you start looking at you know municipality regulation, state regulation, you know the anticipated federal regulation, and and a lot of it's dictated by what the constituency holds, right? Uh, you know, you have some uh, municipalities that have first legalized hemp, so then there's a inherent preference to that. On the flip side, there's other municipalities that have first legalized marijuana, and then the hemp folks come in after the fact. And so every municipality has had to figure out how to deal with this potential or arguable conflict on their own. And municipalities aren't staffed or resourced in a way that they can uh, uh, aptly or adeptly handle that. And so some states ideally will you know, resolve some of these issues in terms of you know dictating what is or is not allowable under state law. But at the end of the day, doesn't this further the argument, and and we're obviously not there yet, but the argument that under federal law, there should be a harmonization of both hemp and marijuana, that at some point should be dictated by the the intended end use of the material as to whether that's marijuana, hemp, industrial, or otherwise. Because otherwise, how do you resolve those conflicts, Donnie, right? You start thinking about that, that we're going to have this conflict of agricultural pollination for decades, unless there is some sort of you know, uh, conflict resolution or other harmonization. Um, And and I think we'll continue to see that. At one point or another though, it may also be dictated by the uh, invisible hand of the marketplace. Are more marijuana growers gonna say, you know what, this is a heavy, you know, hemp area. I'm going to go into a greenhouse rather than outdoors to handle this myself because I can't trust government regulators to resolve this aptly uh, or adeptly for myself or for our company, right? Uh, so I think you're, you're going to see many market participants take you know, matters into their own hands uh, in that respect. You're seeing the same thing on the hemp side as well, but with the commoditization of hemp, I think you're, you're much more likely to see that on the uh, marijuana side than on the hemp side, so...
0: Well, what I I think is just so interesting about this is it kind of shows where science and law and policy all intersect because we don't even know exactly what the uh, pollen barrier is for cannabis. And while we've been talking about just the the seeding of someone else's crop, we haven't even touched on, and we will do it another time what happens with respect to genetics and intellectual property of plant variety protection uh, when you end up having uh, across genetics. And I'm thinking of a, which will, I'll keep it nameless, but I'm thinking of another international agriculture company where this subject has uh, really been at the forefront for the last couple of decades. But this is certainly not the first time that we will be joined uh, by you gentlemen. This is not the last time, and uh, we can't, it's, it is, it's a humdinger of a harbinger, You're going to be back again. We'll dig into all of it more. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hoban Minute. Do you have any ideas for episode topics or guests? We would like to hear from you. Reach out to us at media at hoban.law and stay tuned for more on the Hoban Minute.